You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the Word of God for the people of God today. And would you bow your heads in prayer with me, Father? Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we confess as we come before You with the Word open that we are unable to understand Your Word, unable to be transformed by Your Word, short of You doing a miraculous work by the power of Your Spirit. So God, we ask that You would come as the good Father that You are and that You would, by Your Spirit, speak. For we know, Father, that man cannot live by bread alone, but can only be sustained and nourished and changed by the words of the mouth of God. And so, God, we ask that you would speak into our hearts and lives, that you would come and reveal desires inside of our hearts, our souls, our spirits, which are contrary to you, at war with you. We ask, God, that you would reveal those evil desires deep inside of us and that you would transform those desires and make them holy, righteous, God-honoring desires. God, we ask that you would come and do all of that and more. We ask, God, that you would give brand new hearts to people who walked in with dead hearts. We ask that you would give uh, transformed hearts to those whose hearts are weak, trembling, broken, wounded, sick. We ask that you would do that and that you would draw us to the foot of the cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. Give us the hope of heaven once again that you might sustain us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Want to uh, start us off this morning with a question that I often ask. If you've never heard me ask this question, it would be a surprise to me. 
It's a question that we should probably ask ourselves often. It's a basic question. question simply is, what do you want? What, what did you walk in this morning wanting deeply? Deep down inside, you would say, I really want X. What do you long for? What captures the attention of your heart and your mind? That's where I want us to kind of center in on this morning. The desires of the heart. What do you want? Now, in my observation, uh, people will typically go to great lengths to get what they want. You think about fame, fortune, power, comfort, security, control, respect, or love, or companionship or acceptance, or or escape. These are the kinds of things, these are the desires that act like powerful motivators for all kinds of um, thought patterns and behaviors, many times sinful thought patterns and behaviors. And for most of us, for many of us in this room, it's not hard to confess and admit that nothing is too valuable to spend in obtaining these little treasures, whatever it is that you want, right? You use the character Gollum from uh, the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies often because it's such an easy, such an easy uh, illustration of what it looks like when we want something. Like that character Gollum, we often cast all of our caution to the wind as we pursue this intoxicating effect of the Little precious, my little precious that we want so deeply, right? In short, what happens is that we, uh, we, we, we do almost anything we can to gain the object of our affection by any means possible. Never noticing that in the midst of that, what's happening is we are turning into a really ugly creature. Now, while some of us pursue the object of our affections through really outwardly immoral behaviors, you think, think about things like pornography or substance abuse or overspending. Um, and there are some of us that fall into those categories. There really is a lot of us that fall into a different category. Um, I need to give credit where credit was due. This is a conversation that popped up in our gospel community last week that hadn't clarified it this way, and it just, man, it connected. Um, it's this thought that a lot of us actually pursue things um, in very less visible, uh, what, what appears to be more acceptable, in fact, more acceptable sinful things. More acceptable means um, like worrying, right? Anybody here worry much? Have any problems calling your friends and just talking about how worried you are? It doesn't feel as sinful as going and just knocking back a six-pack, right? doesn't feel as sinful, but... The reality is sin is sin. But oftentimes, we, once we become Christians, or we call ourselves Christians, we, we sin in more acceptable ways, like worrying, or how about gossip? Gossip is like one of the biggest, I think, one of the, one of the most major sins in Christianity, and, is, and it's condoned often, if not encouraged, right? But gossip or manipulation. Manipulation is a good one, too. And what happens is, as I said a minute ago, before you even know what happened, you're stuck in this endless cycle, right? 
It's this endless cycle of keeping up appearances in front of people. You're pulling your scripts out of your pocket so that, so that you can talk through them. Uh, you're putting your mask on your face, which is kind of a funny illustration in this day and age, right? But you're putting your mask on your face because you want to pretend to be somebody that you're not, which I would just encourage all of us to do in this. No, I'm not I'm kidding. In this season, you could. You could probably get away with it. So uh, the mask it doesn't matter. The mask I would wear. That's what we do. We pull those scripts out, put our masks on, try to get our performance then to match all of our self-made resumes at that point, right? This is to say that before you know it, what happens is you are caught in this really vicious cycle of legalism. It's based on performance where you're trying to keep up appearances. And up until this point in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has ferociously, I'd say ferociously, dude's a beast. Right? Guy's no pansy when he speaks against legalism. He has ferociously ripped into the legalists in the room who would seek to derail the Philippian believers from living their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. He knows that legalism is actually an anti-gospel. It's no gospel whatsoever. There is no good news in the news that you must work to either obtain or prove your salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul joyfully, joyfully reminded the Philippian believers to avoid legalistic dogs, legalistic evildoers, and legalistic mutilators. And he instructed them to do so as they rested in the truth of who they are because of whose they are. Remember, you might remember that week, that who you are is defined by whose you are. Who you enslave yourself to, give yourself to, defines who you are. It's an identity issue. And he tells them at the end of those first three verses of chapter 3, basically, to rest in who you are because of whose you are. We are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision, he says. It's not identity thing, identity marker. And then in verses 4 through 9, um, the Apostle Paul takes this second swing at the whole thing, takes kind of a second swing at his legalistic opponents, does this with what I would call a, a, like a heavyweight glove. That heavyweight glove was full of his superior resume as well as his superior account. Remember all the accounting language towards the end, whatever I gained, I lost, whatever I lost, I gained. In short, the Apostle Paul uh, has just landed what I would call kind of like the, uh, you know, the one-two knockout punch. I don't know whose alarm that is, but it doesn't mean Jesus is coming back, I don't think. Hopefully. <laughs> We're all still here, so depending on your theology, if you believe in the rapture and all that stuff, you might have to change your theology now because he came back and we're here. All right, I'm back. Sorry. That's, that's what happens. Bunny trail. Squirrel. <clears throat> So in short, what the Apostle Paul has just done here is I think he's landed this one-two knockout punch that has deflated the claims of legalism as the superior way, okay? In effect, what has the Apostle Paul done? He has taken the theology of legalism, which basically claims, as I said last week, that Jesus plus something equals everything. And what, 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 that's the legalism theology. And what Paul has done is he has proved by contrast that for a true believer, a true Christian, that there's actually a gospel-centered theology that teaches us in reality that Jesus plus absolutely nothing is what equals everything. So you see, as you 
bring your filthy rags of nothingness to the foot of the cross, that's where you find transformation. That's where change happens. That's where we all become more and more transformed into the image of Christ. See, there is no righteousness to be found in our works. Uh, the cross-centered life is the life of true righteousness. The cross-centered life is the place where the my precious of Paul's life was transformed into a new desire. And that new desire was simply to know Christ. That's the new desire. Let me take a look at this in, in the text. I'm going to walk through five things that I, I see in the text that if you were to ask Paul, what do you want, Paul? He would say, this is what I want. Here's what I think he says. Number one, he says, I want to know Christ. Verse 10. Paul has just said in verses 7 and 8 and 10, he has said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is basically a swear word in the Greek. So we'd have a conversation about swearing later, but Paul uses a filthy word to get his point across. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse 10, that I may know Him. This, this isn't about knowing about, like all the things you can talk about. Like, oh, God did this, Jesus did that, the Bible says this, theology is that, yada, yada. It's not the academic level of knowing about something. It's the heart level, the intimate level of experientially knowing someone. I use the illustration of my wife and I's relationship all the time. I can tell you all about her today. She's got really beautiful short hair. Uh, she's got these little wings on the sides and uh, she's wearing a plaid shirt and uh, the boots that she's got on this morning are really really awesome and uh, she rides a Harley Davidson motorcycle which is pretty BA if you ask me probably not supposed to say it in the pulpit, but I just did so caught myself on the back edge sorry anyways I tell you all about my wife um, but the question is, is can, can, can I tell you about what's happening in her heart do I, do I know her can I, tell, can I tell you what gets her jacked up? Can I tell you what's happened inside of her soul over this last week? Can I tell you where she's at emotionally and spiritually right now? Do, do I know her? Do I spend time with her? Do I have a relationship with my wife? Or is she just there in name and title only? That's the illustration I would use for what Paul is saying here about wanting to know Christ. Because for the Apostle Paul, there is no higher desire than to know Christ intimately. Not just about Him, but to know Him. It's been, at this point, it's been 30 years for Paul. 30 years! Who here has followed Jesus for more than 30 years? One? Two? <laughs> Three? I, I know it. That's a horrible question to ask. You're like, please don't make me show my age. <laughs> It's been 30 years since Paul started following Jesus, since he met him on the road to Damascus. And in those 30 years, what happened to the Apostle Paul is that his desire to know Christ had grown more and more intense because he had experienced 
The radical, selfless, sacrificial, and steadfast, not reckless, steadfast love of Christ. That's the kind of love Paul had experienced, not just known about, but known. The question is, do you want to know the radical, selfless, steadfast love of Christ? Would that make it on your list? Do you want to know not just about Jesus, but do you want to know him intimately, personally, hear from him, speak to him? Do you want to know the heart of Christ? Second thing I see, the Apostle Paul says that he would want, he would say, I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Now, it's no secret, uh, I don't think, that powerful people can draw a crowd. Right? <laughs> you look at the crazy political season that we're in right now, and if you're a person of political power, you can draw a crowd. Agreed? Powerful people can draw a crowd. <coughs> you look at the religious landscape, you see people who are powerful and influential, they can draw crowds. But just because you draw a crowd doesn't make you good or right. <coughs> most of us, I think, enjoy being around people of power and influence, at least at some level. Okay, so track with me and follow me here. We enjoy being around people of power and influence because it makes us feel special, sometimes. Sometimes it makes us feel safe. Uh, you might think of this in terms of your doctor. Your doctor has power and influence. And you enjoy being around your doctor when you're sick and you need healing and help, right? If you're wise. The wife would say, my husband's not very wise because I hate going to the doctor. That's another story for another time. But we do enjoy being around people of power and influence uh, based on what we can kind of gain from that experience. And when you think about the life of Christ, uh, you think about tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, lepers, the lame, the deaf, the blind, the demon-possessed, even the dead people, in the case of Lazarus, uh, wanted to be close to Jesus because he was a powerful man. He was God in the flesh. No one on earth had ever or will ever possess the power that Christ possesses. And the Apostle Paul had met this Jesus in the flesh, on the road to Damascus, 30 years earlier as he was turning and burning in this terroristic rampage to destroy Christ's followers by any means necessary. <coughs> and on that road, Paul the terrorist comes face to face with the resurrected Christ and in that moment, he, he is transformed from Paul the terrorist into the Apostle Paul. That's transformation. He went from being Osama bin Laden to one of the greatest leaders in the history of Christianity. That, that's crazy. It's the power of transformation. This is why the Apostle Paul says that he wants to know, not know about, I want to know, intimately know, the power of Christ's resurrection. You see, the power of the resurrection is the power of conversion and transformation. 
The power of the resurrection is what gives you a brand new, converted, regenerated heart. The old heart of stone is taken away, and the brand new heart is given to you. So the power of the resurrection is the power of conversion and transformation. You see, the power that transformed the selfishness of the apostle Paul was the absolute selflessness of Christ at the cross. You see, the same power that had raised Jesus from the dead was alive and well in the Apostle Paul. And after 30 years being filled with that resurrection power, thirsted for more. Now, that desire for power is a different desire for power than the one that we often struggle with. Agreed? <coughs> so do you want to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Do you want to know that power? Notice the third thing the Apostle Paul says. says, I want to share in Christ's suffering. This is, uh, we're going to spend some time here. I want to share in Christ's suffering. It struck me as I studied this passage that we have a suffering shortage in the American church today in comparison with the early church and the historical church. We have a suffering shortage. Now I also believe, I'll make this other statement, that we have a suffering aversion. Not only do we have a shortage, but we have an aversion to suffering. Nobody wants to suffer at any point in our lives. That doesn't necessarily make us weak or less than anything. It's just That's a human, nobody, nobody who's ever lived, it, kind of a sick person if you like to suffer, don't you think? Kind of, kind of, there's something going on inside of me if I want to suffer. In, in our prosperous American culture, I think we have become spoiled and opposed to the sanctification that suffering brings into the life of the believer. That is to say, we have become opposed to the, the, to the result that suffering can produce in us. Because that result can be holiness. It can cause us to be more like Jesus. Uh, the reality here in the American church for us, because I'm in an American church, right? Not in another one somewhere else. I know it makes us squirm. <laughs> it makes us uncomfortable. Oh, he's going to talk about the American church again. Good Lord. And if that's where you're at, I, I'd probably call you out in your pride. Pride and arrogance. You've got an issue with that, right? So I'll just talk more later if we need to. Here's the reality. In the American church, we have yet to face the horrors of being burned alive at the stake. Hadn't happened as a mass happening in our country. Have yet to be burned alive at the stake. Have yet to be beaten with whips. Have yet to be crucified on the roadside and lit up like lampposts. Have yet to be beheaded in front of our families. Have yet to be boiled in oil. Have yet to be sawed in half lengthwise. For simple things like writing the Bible in a different language. But such has been the fate of many believers throughout the generations, right? And such is the fate of many believers across the world today. Uh, but never have we experienced this kind of suffering in the West, albeit we could argue we ought to protect ourselves from that, right? That becomes the posture of many an American Christian. Let's protect us from get, ever getting there. Not necessarily wrong. Don't hear me wrong. 
Here's what happens in the American church. Catchy slogans like this. Find your best life now. Discover your potential here. Find the family you always wanted inside our church doors. Or my personal favorite, because it's the one that I've actually used, the church for people who don't like church. We use these catchy slogans. These are the catchy slogans that we use to entice people to come and check us out as though we're trying to sell something to an already over-consumerized culture. So if a moment ago I was picking on you for your pride, right now I'm confessing my pride in using the ways of the world in a catchy slogan to attempt to plant a church. It seems to me that these pithy, empty, powerless, unbiblical slogans these slogans would make the saints who suffered throughout the generations hot with righteous anger for good reason. So what I want to do for a moment is take a quick look at some of the key texts in the Bible regarding suffering. I just want to like do a broad, brief flyby of them. I'm not going to read all of those texts because it would take us a long time. But I would encourage you, they're on the screen, I would encourage you to write them down. Um, and go back and test, listen to this sermon again, test what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you a summary of what I think each passage says about suffering, so that we might gain a bit more of a biblical understanding of what suffering actually is. So one of the easiest, lowest, most commonly quoted ones is James chapter 1, verses 2-3. through In that verse, James basically says that we should see suffering as the joyful opportunity to be tested and to grow in our patience. So do you feel like you're suffering because your political party is not doing so well right now? That's an opportunity for you to be tested and to grow in patience. Don't ask God for patience. Ask him for the opportunity to become patient. Or ask him for patience, and that's what he's going to give you, right? Peter, 1 Peter 1, 6-7, also chapter 3, verses 4, 14-18. What does Peter say? He says that suffering is a blessing. Well, that's crazy. See, suffering... I'm blessed and highly favored today, bro. I'm suffering like crazy. Said no one in a conversation hardly ever, right? Peter says that suffering is a blessing because why? Because it proves that our faith is genuine. Because here's the thing. When you go back to the whole seeds on the pathway that the, that the sower throws out, right? It's those seeds where you hear the gospel. Do they fall on a heart that is good soil or a heart that is bad soil? There is one of those soils that when suffering comes, either A, burns up or blows away the seed, and the people fall away from the faith. So it goes in line with that when Peter says that suffering is a blessing because it proves, in that time, we, it is proven that our faith is genuine. We don't walk away. We don't bail out. We don't tap out. We stick with it, and we actually grow in the midst of that. Look at 2 Timothy 1.8. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul tells Timothy that the that the power of God is what's going to enable him to suffer well for Christ. He doesn't tell Timothy the power of God's going to help you escape this, the power of God's going to help you medicate this, the power of God's going to help you overcome this, the power of God's going to help you get out of this. He says the power of God is actually going to help you endure and suffer well for Christ. 
You look at 1 Thessalonians 3, 3-4, Paul tells the Thessalonian church that he has previously warned them. Now, why would Paul warn people about this? Paul's previously warned the church that they will suffer for the sake of Christ and that they should not be dismayed at what they are experiencing. It reminds me of some things that Jesus said. Jesus said this as well. I'm going to suffer for my name. Romans 8, 17 through 18, Paul tells the Christians in Rome that they will in fact suffer if they belong to God. There's actually a conditional phrase there when you, when you read it. It's the sense that if you believe, if you belong to God, you're going to suffer. Which the, the opposite of that is like, man, if I ain't suffering, do I belong to him? Like maybe things are comfy right now for me because my father's not God. Maybe my father is the devil and he's got me right where he wants me. So that's a, it's a good test, I think. And again, I don't know that we want to go out looking for suffering, do we? As I said earlier, it kind of makes us seem like we're sick people if that's what we're doing. But what does the Apostle Paul say? I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. So is he a sick puppy or what? No, I just think there's been some transformation taking place in his life. If you look at Acts 14, verse 22, Paul encourages Christians in various small towns to continue in the faith. How? By understanding that entrance into the kingdom of God means suffering and tribulation. So summarize that this way, no suffering equals no kingdom. Jesus suffered for the kingdom so that we might become part of the kingdom. Therefore, we should expect the same as our Savior. 1 Corinthians 4, 9-13, Paul describes the suffering that he and his companions have experienced. He uses words like this, sentenced to death. Any of us here have been sentenced to death? Not yet. Hunger, gone hungry for the gospel yet? I know I haven't. You can tell that. <laughs> you look at me. I love my food. Thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless because of the gospel, reviled, persecuted, slandered, scum of the world, the refuse, the waste of all things. It basically says, I am the thing that got left in the toilet. That is the way I've been treated. Is that testimony true of us here in America? Come on. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9, through 9, again, to the Corinthian church. Paul had a lot to say to the Corinthian church. He had a lot to say to the Ephesian church too. He had a lot to say to the Corinthian church. 2, 4, 8 through 9, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. Paul describes his suffering with words like afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. That's suffering. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Final one, just in case the church still wasn't getting the picture, in case the church still wasn't in a place where they would be able to stomach the thought of suffering for Christ, the Apostle Paul gets even more detailed. Here's what he says. I'm going to actually read this one. Five times I received the ha- at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, meaning I was whipped to within an inch of my life. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and not like he smoked a joint. He got stoned with rocks. 
Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the people I trusted the most, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, on top of all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. When was the last time you lost sleep over a fellow member in the church? When was the last time? Why would we expect anything less in terms of suffering than the experience of the Apostle Paul? Because we have an Americanized version of the Bible, that's why. And church has been pushing that like crack for a long time. And it creates sickness just like crack. It creates a prosperity gospel that says, if I'm a Christian, things will go well. Now in Philippians 3.10, this apostle Paul, who knew what it meant to suffer for the sake of Christ, what does he say? He says he wants to share in Christ's suffering, the word there is fellowship. When we think of fellowship, we think of food, parties, right? We think of getting together for that fun potluck. We think of having people over to our home because we just love to fellowship together. It's what we do in our gospel communities every week. We fellowship together. It's an important thing. The Bible talks about it, yes. Paul uses that word here, though, in a different way because it's a symbol of intimate, close fellowship. I want to share, not just in relationship with one another, but I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul's slogan for his church plant was this, come and share in the suffering of Christ. You don't get a coffee mug with our logo on it, you get a cross to carry out the door over your back. That's Paul's picture of what it means to be Christian. Why? Because he knew that suffering for Christ is actually a sign of sacred intimacy with Jesus that moves us as believers beyond the role of mere beneficiaries, people who consume products, moves us beyond that into people who are participants in a life under the headship of Jesus. It's the fellowship of sanctification through suffering. You see, suffering for Christ and suffering like Christ is oftentimes viewed in our American culture as a sign of God's neglect. It was even viewed this way in the Old Testament. So it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun according to Ecclesiastes. The book of Job is the best place to go. Read the entire book. And the entire issue they're having in Job is simply this. Man, I thought if you live righteously, everything would go well. Job, you must have sinned. Something must have happened. And Job's like, yo, no. I'm a good man. Yeah, sure, I sin, but I'm following the Lord. I'm repenting, doing my thing. Everything's been laid to waste. And then God comes down later and he goes, you're trying to make sense of this in the wrong way. You forgot about the fact that you can't completely understand God, me. Where were you the day that I did this? Where were you the day that I did that? You weren't there, son. Suffering like Christ is not a sign of God's neglect. It's actually a sign 
of the proof of God's grace at work in our lives. You go back to that story of Job. Who initiated the conversation? Who initiated the conversation? We always think it was Satan. Like Satan comes in the room, he's like, oh God, I'm, I'm bored. Give me somebody to go pick on. Actually not it. God's actually the one that initiated the conversation. Yo, Satan, what are you up to today? Well, I'm kind of bored. Oh, really? You're bored. Have you thought about my man Job? That's the way the conversation goes. God was the one who initiated the evil that came into Job's life. Why? That's a, that's a tough one. Just go to the language and look at it, though. Does that mean God is evil? No. But God has no problems using something hard, something evil, like a cross, to redeem and to transform. That's the theology of the cross all the way through Scripture. So, suffering like Christ is not a sign of God's neglect. It's a sign of the proof of God's grace at work in our lives. See, the power of the resurrection is actually what enables us to withstand the fellowship of suffering. And not only withstand that suffering, to endure it, to stay steadfast, but to also long for it. Now I get to that point. You actually long to know Christ intimately in his suffering. So do you long to intimately know the suffering of Christ? Or do you run and hide from those moments when you have an opportunity to suffer like Christ? That would be one way of testing to see if you desire and long for it. Fourth thing the Apostle Paul says, well, that he wants, he says, I want to become like Christ in his death. I want to become like Christ in his death. How many of you have attended a funeral this year? Probably not many of us because funerals are hard to attend this year, right? Um, but we've all known people this year, I think, or been close to people who have passed away this year and even in the past. We've all known people who have died. <coughs> now, oftentimes we attend the funerals of loved ones and we hear the list of the things that they either accomplished or um, that they stood for in this life. And what happens? We, we long to be like them a little bit. Man, I, I kind of want to be like aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so or grandma or grandpa because they were like this. You, you remember the good things about them and you want to be like them. And it's not a bad thing that I'm saying here. It's a natural human thing for us. Good thing. To want to emulate the life of someone else as we encounter their death and think about our own impending death. It's natural and good. And I think some of that is actually present in what Paul is saying here. He wants to be like Jesus. But he's not pointing to the life of Jesus in this moment. He's actually pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary for the sake of his enemies. That's what he's pointing to. How many of you in this room would say, I'd be happy to die for my enemy? Who's your enemy right now? Who's your enemy right now? <clears throat> Trying to remember symbols for the different parties that are running right now. You got your Democrats, you got your Republicans, you got a donkey, and what's the other one? An elephant, thank you. It shows you how much I pay attention. Would you die for that enemy? No, truth be told, truth be told, I think I in this moment want to die for that enemy. I want to take that enemy out. Maybe you're more holy than me in that, but 
And Paul knows that every true Christian who has been discipled in the way of Christ knows this, namely, that the life of a Christian is conformed to Christ's death and through Christ's death because every Christian is simply called to carry multiple personal crosses on a daily basis, to die to certain selfish and sinful tendencies, to carry those crosses well. And in carrying those multiple personal crosses, those crosses lead to a series of deaths each and every day, which then result in a series of many resurrections where we are resurrected from that death over and over and over again. It's a daily thing for us if you know Jesus and if you carry a cross. If you don't carry a cross, Jesus says, you don't belong to me. But Jesus says, so this kind of a daily cross-carrying exercise leads us into a series of deaths into a series of many resurrections that we call sanctification, which simply means to become more like Jesus through his death. But do you long to become like Christ in his death? What is it that you're dying to each and every day? What is it that God is resurrecting in you and making like new in you? Are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? And not just one time when you said the sinner's prayer and got yourself saved with your prayer. That day when you prayed and called out to God and he gave you a new heart. However you put all of that in a list, I really don't care. But at the end of the day, that's not the only day that he would make you a new creation. It's a daily thing. Becoming more and more holy. Do you long to become like Christ in his death? Fifth and final thing that I think Paul says, if you were to ask him, Paul, what do you want? He would say, I want to attain the resurrection from the dead, verse 11. See, Paul literally says it this way, that by, by any means possible, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the word resurrection here literally means out from the dead. It's kind of like the word exodus, which means out from Egypt. Egypt was symbolic of oppression, slavery, and death to sin, death under sin. And in this life, this side of the cross, we follow Jesus, who is the one who broke the power of the oppressor, Pharaoh, Satan, right? Slavery to sin and death, which comes as a result. So resurrection, similar to the word exodus, out from Egypt, as well as to exit, to leave. So this is to leave the grave, out from the dead. And in that word resurrection, what we're reminded of is that every day for a believer is our opportunity to be involved in a personal resurrection day. Every day as you get up out of bed and exit your bed and leave your bed empty just like Jesus leaves the tomb empty, you're able to be reminded of the experience of the transforming power of the resurrection in your life. And Paul knows that after 30 years of following Jesus, there's nothing more transforming in the life of the believer than the power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. So do you want this too? Do you want to attain the resurrection of the dead? Because in conclusion, I leave you back with that question again. What do you want? What do you long for the most? What captures the attention of your heart and mind? Again, as I said at the beginning, 
in my observation of humanity, we will go to great lengths to get what we want. We will go to great lengths to get what we want. By all means necessary, we will chase down what we want. So do you want the five things that Paul says he wants, or do you want something else? Fame, fortune, power, control, comfort, security, respect, love, companionship, acceptance, escape. Those are powerful, powerful things. Powerful motivators for all kinds of thought patterns and behaviors, a lot of them sinful. Again, as I said earlier, there are two different kinds of streams for us. I don't know which one you fall into. I can look around the room. I know most of you, so I, I can categorize you myself, but it's not about me categorizing you. It's about you and the Holy Spirit doing your work together. Some of us in this room, we, um, <coughs> we pursue the object of our affections through really outwardly immoral behaviors, right? Pornography, substance abuse, overspending, yada, yada. More of us in this room, <coughs> we pursue our little precious through very less visible, more acceptable means like worrying, gossiping, manipulation, control. Before you know it, uh, what happens, you get stuck in this endless cycle, trying to keep up appearances, got your scripts that you pull out of your pockets, got your mask that you put on to fake everybody out, you're trying to get your performance to match your self-made resume, Basically, this is all to say that before you know it, you get caught in a vicious cycle of legalism, right? <coughs> but God, through the Apostle Paul, has given us this example in this passage of what it looks like to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wanted to know Christ. He wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection. He wanted to share in Christ's suffering. He wanted to become like Christ in his death. He wanted to attain the resurrection of the dead. In short, the Apostle Paul had been transformed from a selfish man into a selfless man because of the bloody cross, the empty tomb, and the hope of heaven. You see, the cross-centered life is where the my precious of Paul's heart had been transformed into this deeply held desire to know Jesus and nothing else. Do you want to know Christ? Do you want to know the power of Christ's resurrection? Do you want to share in Christ's suffering? Do you want to become like Christ in his death? Do you want to attain the resurrection of the dead by any means necessary? These aren't just yes-no answers. These are evaluatory questions. It's to evaluate your soul and see where you can be asking God to help you in this journey. It's a slow journey. It doesn't happen overnight. It's called the journey of transformation. You will not be instantly transformed, although in a spiritual sense you are perfect in front of your father there is a journey of being perfected in this life whereby those desires are transformed little bit by little bit by little bit not a race see who gets there first and the finish line is not your perfection this side of heaven 
Oftentimes we legalists, we, I put myself in that camp at the head of the group. We legalists like to see this journey as an opportunity to say, but I repented. Good. There's no check mark at the end of repenting. <laughs> repenting is a continual process with transformation as the result and heaven as the finish line. So if your answer is yes, all those questions, and I would just encourage you to do this. So what I say every week, it's the one message I have to preach. It's the one message I'll preach till I die. And the message is this. That's what you want. Now start spending your life from the first moment you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night. Spend your life at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb holding fast to the hope of heaven. You do those three things day in and day out. And that's what we call the cross-centered life. And in that place, you will be transformed to the image of Christ. Amen? Pray for us, Father. We thank you for your word. We ask God that you would come in the next moments as we worship you. And that you would transform the desires of our hearts. Help us to want you more than anything else. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.